Alex Barlow, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. Former Wunderkind high-tech CEO and Wokistan icon Elizabeth Holmes is guilty of four conspiracy and fraud charges in the Theranos corruption trial, uh, which should be a, yet another major blow to the establishment, particularly the political media and the big tech establishment. It should be a massive media moment. There was so many people who bought into her BS from James Mad Dog Mattis to the DeVos family to Rupert Murdoch to Joe Biden and perhaps especially Barack Obama. But most important of all, the big tech elite and the establishment media all hyped and hyped and hyped her rise to unfathomable wealth and cultural clout. And it's all because they wanted to anoint her. And it turned out it was all smoke and mirrors. And I uh, talked about this in the opening of the show, whether or not this will have a lasting impact, whether or not there will be some lessons learned. I'm quite skeptical of this. Uh, But we are already seeing the media frame this as some sort of a mixed verdict and her downfall is continuing. It's all sort of broad. It really is much more specific than that. This was a massive hoax. Everyone was wrapped up into it, especially the press, and a really head should roll in a major way, but I don't think they will. I really don't, because the politicians and the media that hyped her are the ones in power who control so much for a narrative, so eventually we'll all just move on. And just a a friendly reminder that the news really is broken. Uh, Also in the opening, we get into NASCAR, who won't allow Let's Go Brandon Brown to have an advertisement for the LGB coin On his race car, I think this is emblematic of our modern times where uh, we are basically not allowed to have fun so long as there's a totalitarian out there who would like to impose a rule or regulation for the sake of usurping more power and freedom. I explain in the opening as well as the latest corona schizophrenia, which is getting worse by the minute. We've got thousands upon thousands of schools shutting down due to the not particularly awful Omicron variant of COVID-19. But you're starting to see places like the NBA maybe start lessening some of the vaccine requirements, but the city of New York still enforcing vaccine requirements. It's also anti-science, and I try to catch you up as best I can, which is almost impossible. Um, It is January 6th week and the hype is escalating. The latest development is the Democrats are trying to use the anniversary of the Capitol riot to try to codify the federal takeover of elections and dismantling existing regulations on voting. How are these related? I have no idea, but we try to make sense of it in today's show as well. Uh, Two guests today, both really uh, top-notch. A mathematician turned anti-woke culture warrior, Dr. James Lindsay, is on. Uh, He's been on the live show in the past, first time on the podcast. He's one of the more compelling thinkers, I think, in the public internet sphere these days, and uh, he gets into what the truth is about CRT, how it's being implemented, what it really stands for, uh, queer theory, the trans hysteria, and other examples of cultural Marxism ingrained in our culture at this time. So a super compelling, and I'll tell you, as we were recording this on the live show, I was getting tons and tons of emails on this. People are just blown away with his brain, and uh, I am too. So good to talk to him. Uh, J.D. Vance joins us yet again, another fan favorite, Ohio Senate candidate, Hillbilly LG 
author, and I asked him to lay out his plan for a crackdown on big tech, and I have to admit, I was impressed. It was very comprehensive and thorough and not as broad and a bumper sticker or slogan-y as so many of the current Washington crop put out there, even on the right. So all that to come on the show today, but first... I do want to tell you about AMAC, which is a terrific sponsor, a group that I've supported for a long time and is uh, now part of the podcast. Uh, They're a conservative advocacy and benefits organization with more than 2 million members and counting the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has become one of the most important conservative organizations in the country. And joining AMAC gives you access to money-saving benefits, cutting-edge news, and a magazine full of insightful takes on today's most important issues. But most importantly, AMAC is working tirelessly to preserve the freedom secured by our Constitution. With a full-time presence on Capitol Hill, AMAC is pushing back against the efforts to defund our police, weaken our borders, and replace your freedom with government controls. So stand with me and over 2 million patriots by joining right now at amac.us forward slash Breitbart. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Breitbart. The benefits are great, but the cause is greater. So join today. It's amac.us forward slash Breitbart. conviction, or at least the partial conviction, of former Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes, uh, who was found guilty of fraud and conspiracy, at least in a few cases. Uh, Those of you who are unfamiliar with this case, it's pretty fascinating. A federal jury convicted former Theranos founder, CEO Elizabeth Holmes, on four counts of fraud and conspiracy on Monday, and this was a lengthy trial that had Holmes, who's a younger, very blonde, Silicon Valley woman who was hailed as the next Steve Jobs because of, I I think, some obvious woke reasons. They had anointed her around 2015, 2016 with a bunch of magazine covers as the glamorous genius who will be revolutionizing um, various high-tech industries. She allegedly had, and I say allegedly because it wasn't really real, a technology called Minilab. And this Minilab was a device that would revolutionize blood testing because it would uh, allow for you to be able to get a lot of information, super super high tech, medical breakthroughs that could be uh, detected uh, because you could detect with just a few drops of blood instead of more invasive um, insertion of you know catheters and insertions of uh, giant uh, needles into veins. You could just give with a few drops of blood a, a detection of a wide range of diseases and other medical conditions. This was considered a major medical breakthrough at the time, um, and it would mean that uh, the blood testing industry, which has been dominated by a couple of companies called uh, Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp, you've probably seen some of those uh, bills on your desk. I know we have at my house uh, every once in a while. 
Um, but this would make tests simpler, cheaper, less intrusive, and allow for people to diagnose stuff a lot quicker, which is really one of the key things. And, and talking to Mrs. Dr. Marlowe about stuff, um, and uh, she's also, I always refer to her as a uh, oncologist, but the way they do the training now is she's actually an oncologist, hematologist, so blood doctor too. Uh, she, she'll tell you early detection is, is pretty crucial. Um, in in life, and the earlier you can detect stuff, the it could be the difference literally between life and death, um, at least in the medium to long term. So this was really hailed as this massive, massive breakthrough, and she was a terrific salesperson. Uh, she told the investing and tech world exactly what they needed to hear. I guess they say the uh, old sales um, uh, strategy is you find out what people want to hear, and then you tell them that. I do think uh, it's always good to check in if anyone's doing that to you in your life. The answer is often yes. Uh, but she told the investing world and the big moneyed world and the people who uh, wanted to an anoint a young, glamorous woman as the uh, second coming of Steve Jobs. Um, she told them exactly what they needed to hear over and over again to the point where at her peak, she was worth about $4.5 billion. And she was taking in investments like $125 million from Rupert Murdoch, uh, Henry Kissinger uh, sunk millions into it, the DeVos family, Betsy DeVos's family, uh, nine figures. Um, and the list goes on. Larry Ellison. It, it's a sort of who's who. The Walmart family, the Waltons. Uh, it just it's a who's who of investors sunk tons and tons of money into her company. And again, she's probably you know thirty one, thirty two at the time. It was the exact definition of too good to be true, and that's exactly how it turned out. Um, so she was charged with 11, 11 criminal counts, alleging that she duped the investors and patients. Um, by hailing this technology as this big breakthrough, as it turns out, uh, it, it was it was nothing close to that. And she struck partnerships with Walgreens and Safeway. I mean, she was cutting, wheeling and dealing, cutting these deals. And the technology was prone to you know huge, huge problems. Wild errors was the phrase that Rebecca used in our write up at Breitbart. And um, the these problems started to come to light in 2015, 2016, due to some of the reporting from. Um, the Wall Street Journal, and then it turned into a really big uh, major best-selling book called Bad Blood, um, which uh, a lot of people read. I perused it. It was kind of one that's on my list. Normally when something's on my list, I do read it. I think um, I've got that reputation with you guys. I never actually ended up reading that one. Probably probably a mistake. Probably should have read it. But she's on the cover of all these magazines like Forbes and Fortune, etc. And um, uh, the she actually used some mystery to... Um, uh, and continue to amp up the hype. Here are some other ones. U.S. Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist, Secretaries of State George Shultz, along with Henry Kissinger, Defense uh, Secretary William per uh, Perry, um, Sam Nunn, who was the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, former Navy Admiral Gary Roughhead, former Defense Secretary Four-Star General James Mad Dog Mattis. All these people uh, sunk money into this fraud. It's all, it's all fraud. It's all nothing, all worthless now, and um, it was all big hoax. Praised by Joe the Biden. Big Joey himself said um, uh, some very kind things about her, which we highlight the front page, Breitbart News. She, was an ama she had an amazing invention, is what the big Joey said. Um, so again, so four counts of fraud dating back to when she founded the company, which is way back in 2000. 
and three. Um, and so we'll see. So she could get up to 20 years in prison for each of the four counts, although uh, she's going to get some time uh, uh, served. Some of it's going to be concurrent time. So uh, I don't know. Maybe she'll be back. Maybe she'll try something new. I, that would be a comeback story. I'd be very interested to see. See what happens there. The trial, she was portrayed as a charlatan obsessed with fame and fortune, you think? So Rebecca Mansour writes for us at Breitbart, the way she describes it. So she took the witness stand in her own defense for seven days. Long trial. Cast herself as a visionary trailblazer in a male-dominated Silicon Valley world. She was emotionally and sexually abused by her former lover and business partner, Sonny Balwani, allegedly. So, uh, look, it's a we're getting so rolled by Silicon Valley, this is just the clearest example. We're also getting rolled by the woke left. Who sells us these things that just because you're a victim, that means you're also a hero. So, and people want to cast their heroes. They don't necessarily want to let their heroes come to them. They want their heroes to be cast. He was cast as a hero by our media and even people who are, you know, on the right. New England Patriots owner Bob Kraft invested a million dollars. Wow. Mattis lost 85 million. How do you get that much money? My goodness. Where'd Mad Dog Mattis get $85 million? Weird. I'm guessing consulting contracts. That's just a guess. So guilty of co conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Um, guilty of wire fraud against Theranos investors, totaling $38 million. Wire fraud against Theranos investors and another charge for $99 million. Wire fraud uh, against another investor for $6 million. So those are all the guilties. Not guilty, though, of a bunch of, um, and, and a few no verdicts as well, and then not guilty some other charges as well. These those charges carry, carry big sentences. Um, speaking of Silicon Valley, they are up to no good, as is every, every day on the show. Yesterday we spoke about how Marjorie Taylor Greene was banned from Twitter for life by the Gulag Parag, Parag Agrawal, who's in charge of Twitter at this point, the new CEO of Jack Dorsey, who is coming coming in and uh, wildly censoring whoever he doesn't like. And Facebook has now joined the group. That said that they always test it out. They're always in lockstep politically. Uh, there's no diversity of opinion in Silicon Valley. It's all various uh, uh, shades of, um, you know, the same color. And... Um, uh, Facebook is now blacklisted, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And this is kind of, should come as no surprise. So Greene is now posting on Gab.com, which is one of the alternative free speech platforms. We've written a fair bit about it, Breitbart, if you're curious about it. Um, she's needless to say, she's pretty outraged about it, but this is just how things go. And uh, look for other places to follow. It just This is how it goes. I mean, we've been on the end of these things at Breitbart, where they start with... Uh, one company will uh, test the waters with blacklisting, see how bad the backlash is. And if the backlash isn't sufficient, then they'll keep going. And Twitter, you know, makes several billion dollars a year. And the people who are there are all making enough money and they all have enough of a market share where they feel pretty confident that they could keep banning people and banning people until it just becomes an echo chamber of really uninteresting, angry leftists. Which for me, it's already gone. I mean, it's already, I, I just can't, I can't understand the people on the right who do their best work on Twitter at this point. I think they are feeding the evil, evil beast that is Silicon Valley. I understand using it to some degree 
if you want to market your other stuff. But how many people in your life do you go specifically to their Twitter and nowhere else? The number should be zero if you're on the right at this point. And yet the number is pretty big. And there's a lot of really smug, really sanctimonious people who are actually quite smart. And I do check in with them uh, once in a while on Twitter. And I just don't get it. If that's the main body of your work is on this platform that is not just um, censorious, but is also inspiring other platforms. Do you think Facebook would have blacklisted Marjorie Taylor Greene if Twitter hadn't already done so? Of course not. Twitter tested it out. They were the canary in the coal mines. And um, so Facebook was like, hey, what is Mark, Zuck, baby, come on. Why aren't you banning too? You're not censoring enough these days, bro. And Zuckerberg's like, all right, man, we'll do it. We'll do it, man. We'll censor. Now I'm going to go to Hawaii, do some surfing. Um, Rand Paul is not going to use YouTube. He's going to use Rumble. This is another big one. YouTube is, of course, owned by Google. So uh, YouTube is pretty bad. And YouTube is another one where it's very tough those right-wing people who make a big deal out of youtube we need to have another another place rumble seems pretty good rumble's got some good tech i'm not quite sure how many people are are on it right now uh jd vance's uh hedge fund does advance uh, does a, a, a he does invest in it he'll be on later in the broadcast we'll ask his take um on but rumble seems pretty good you know we're on that at breitbart it seems like the tech's pretty solid the underpinnings of it but that's another one where it's a platform that there's a lot of shadow banning. There's a lot of manual curation of what shows up in YouTube to promote left-wing content. And of course, you know, politically neutral content, distracting content um, over conservative content, even if that's what people want. James O'Keefe has been reporting on this for many years with some of his whistleblowers. Uh, the, the whole story, the origin story of YouTube um, is pretty remarkable. I do recommend if you're so inclined, my friend Patrick Karelchi uh, did a, a pretty incredible audio documentary about it on his Red Pilled America podcast, which I believe we've spoken about on this show. Um, if you're a, a savvy user of non-Google search engines, I'm sure you could find uh, all that. But he breaks it down that it was basically they got this huge market share by stealing stuff and basically daring people to sue them. And they were able to build up market share in time uh, in a quicker rate than they were able to get sued out of business. That's the origin story of YouTube. They were stealing stuff like clips from TV shows. They knew that it was wrong and probably illegal, but they were able to just get so much of, of an audience before they the lawsuits would really kick in and bankrupt them. And so then they had so much money that they could just settle the lawsuits and then they already had the eyeballs who were addicted to the platform. Creepy stuff that goes on in Silicon Valley. And let the uh, Eleanor Holmes, I'm sorry, Elizabeth Holmes. Eleanor Holmes is two-thirds of the name of a congresswoman. Elizabeth Holmes, allow that to be just the latest example. Kevin McCarthy, McCarthy slammed Twitter for continuous and dangerous efforts to silence Americans. Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, who will most likely be the Speaker of the House in a year, He's been pretty good about listening to some of the MAGA rights complaints about big tech. Um, but trust me, it is imperative that the investigations into big tech begin on day one or else there is going to be a lot of anger. So I, I am, for one, am skeptical. I do not trust the Republicans to take on big tech, even if they have power. I don't trust them in this regard. And I will give them every benefit of the doubt because if they keep saying stuff like this, 
that's all they can really do now. There's not really any investigations they can they can do. I, I can't handle any more of these pro forma hearings. But I like the language, continued and dangerous efforts to silence Americans. That's what they're doing. He gives great quotes. I've read huge quotes of his on the air. So, uh, but will he bring home the bacon? That's what we'll be watching at Breitbart.com and on the show. Um, report. NASCAR halts Brandon Brown's deal with Let's Go Brandon cryptocurrency. It needs review at a higher level. We've entered a colossally unfun moment. So you guys might recall Brandon Brown. He was the young man who's kind of in the, um, I, I forget what is the the series that they're in, um, but but this is the, it's kind of like the AAA of NASCAR where he won this race. And um, I think it was at the Talladega Super Speedway. And the F. Joe Biden chance broke out. And then the NBC reporter said that they were saying, let's go Brandon. And, and the ultimate meme was formed. It was the greatest, maybe the greatest, most hilarious moment of 2021. Um, and, he, you know, he's lost some advertisers apparently because of this and which is unfortunate it's not really his fault and he was kind of upset about the let's go brandon chance for a while and now he's taken a pivot and now he's trying to embrace it which is super smart in fact i said exactly that in the show i said that his best move is just to be just embrace it i mean this is his life he didn't choose it but this is what's going on whether he's the center of this and he'll always be known for it, at least for many years. So he's better off uh, trying to figure out a way to leverage it and get some good uh, attention for it and have a good time. So he's figured out a way to do it. There's a, some cryptocurrencies that are popping up uh, surrounding uh, Let's Go Brandon. And one of them is this thing called the LGB coin. Now, those of you who are uh, crypto investors, I have no idea if the coin is credible or will last or is worth anything at all. Um, but they bought ads on his car. So there's going to be an LGB coin um, ad on his NASCAR for his Xfinity series. That's what it is, X Xfinity series. And, you know, there's a pretty cool press release about it with some cool images and video. And it, it was really smart. So and then NASCAR shut it down. And, and NASCAR is presumably run by people who aren't super woke. And they do cater to an audience that is anti-woke. And they shut it. They got to review it. They got to. It needs to be reviewed at a higher level. Oh, why can't we just have fun? I, I just don't get it. We're just in this era. How long is this going to go on? The coronavirus has been, made it so clear that we are now in an era where we are just trying to abide by the letter of the law at all times, and we're not having a. a, a it, we are torturing ourselves. I mean, what is more absurd than the you go to the restaurant and you wear the mask for two seconds walking in the restaurant and then you sit there in the same spot without your mask on for an hour and a half? It's a, we're insane people. This is all about uh, we try to impose rules on ourselves that are not necessary just to have control. So why is NASCAR need to control this? Let's let them have the let's go brand and cryptocurrency. Who cares? After all we witnessed with Donald Trump, Jake Tapper doing a whole segment on Donald Trump's penis on CNN. Like it's a, they, we can't have a let's go Brandon ad on the side of one NASCAR. That, that's that's too far. Now we're really going too far all of a sudden. I was thinking about this yesterday. I went with Master Marlowe, Master Marlowe Jr., Mrs. Dr. Marlowe to a pizza parlor chain, a chain that I think is owned by not left wingers. And it's one that you're all you've all heard of. 
um, uh, yesterday for dinner. And uh, there's a little bit of a wait, partially because I think they were socially distancing. So there's like half the restaurant was empty, but we still had to wait for 20 minutes, which is tough to do with a one and a half year old and a three year old. So then we wait and then we get to our seat, but then we're told we can't go sit in our seat because a master Marlowe Jr. is still in the high chair. And they couldn't have the high chair hanging out into the aisle. The aisles are, you know, six feet wide. Uh, Master Marlo Jr. weighs you know, 31 pounds. So it, it, it's the, he's it, not taking up a lot of space. And, but we had to wait because, you know, the fire code, the fire code is that you can't have the high chair in the six foot long aisle for whatever reason. And Master Marlo Jr., the restaurant was half empty. There was, he wasn't anyone's way at all, but it was against the rules. And everyone's too afraid at the pizza parlor, which is not run by left wingers, to have the one and a half year old uh, jutting out eight inches into the six foot long aisle. And I'm just wondering how long we're going to do this to us, where the letter of the law is what's enforced, not the spirit of the law. And I know all of you who are uh, listening right now, you've got a hundred examples of what I'm thinking of going through your head, where we've stopped thinking about what actually is logical, facts and logic, as they say on the internet. And now we just do what controls us the most, what keeps us on edge, which keeps us kind of um, uh, with our guard up. So we know who's going to police us. I did mention it's January 6th week, and I will keep the January 6th talk to relative minimum, but some of the hysteria is going to be worth addressing. Democrats are trying to use it to the anniversary of the insurrection to jumpstart voting legislation. So everything is going to be about voting rights. This is the, the pivot they've made. Politico Playbook reported yesterday that in the Senate, we hear from well-positioned sources there's a desire to take the opportunity to supercharge the party's long-stalled voting rights legislation, possibly even using the anniversary to try to get Senators Kirsten Sinema from Arizona and Joe Manchin from West Virginia to go nuclear on the filibuster or embrace rule changes. So this is they want to entrench cheat by mail. They want to make it easier to get people who uh, would otherwise not vote to turn in ballots and maybe people who shouldn't be voting legally at all. Another thing that came up in my epic interview with Victor Davis Hanson, which I can't plug enough, definitely one of the most important things I did last year, and it's still fresh. So it's episode 40 if you're a podcast listener. I think it's still on the SXM app, uh, the full um, at least parts of it, if you hunt around. And then definitely on the front page of Breitbart.com. So wherever you get your Breitbart News Daily, you can get it still. I do have to admit, it's cool with the videos. So if you go to Breitbart.com and get it, um, you can get the videos, the visuals of his almond farm in the center of California. Um, but we talked about uh, uh, the difference between a resident and a citizen. And the citizen, the concept of a citizen is very rare and something we've always cherished in America. But traditionally, it's pretty rare. And one of the major distinctions is that citizens are allowed to vote and residents are not. But we now have illegal aliens voting in some local elections, and next we're going to have illegal aliens running for office. So this is what the left does. They keep cheapening what a voter is, what a citizen is, to try to create a country of residents because they don't believe it's meaningful to be a citizen of the United States, at least to the degree that you and I do. I feel, it feels like we, feel like we had something that was sort of working, and now we don't. Even though he's a cartoon character, it's still worthwhile to hear what Eric Fang Fang Schwalwell says about some of the stuff um, because he's such an a, a, a extreme version of whatever the left talking points are. Let's play a cut 10 there, Haley, if you would be so inclined. 
uh, as we approach the midterm elections, we have a party that has chosen over and over, the Republican Party, violence instead of voting. And Senator Paul, what he said in that tweet is essentially to try and rile up uh, Republican voters uh, to try and move against Democratic efforts and suggest there's something nefarious with persuading voters, organizing voters, mobilizing voters, and aiming them and marching them to the ballot box on election day. There's nothing wrong with that. That's called democracy. Uh, but because they can't win elections and they choose violence, they're now trying to demonize that. Yeah, instead of uh, democracy, instead of voting, we choose violence. That's what we want. It, after watching all those Black Lives Matter riots, all the excuses that were made for them, maskless, I go through many of these in my book, Breaking the News, uh, which, uh, again, is uh, if you would like a deeper insight into my thinking, uh, then I, I do recommend it. It's totally different content than the radio because I'm able to go much more specific. Um, and I go through over and over again examples of the whitewashing of the left-wing violence that we witnessed for a whole summer. And now we have to go back a year for the greatest acts of violence in the history of the Republic where one law enforcement person killed one Trump supporter. So, and why, I guess somehow they're going to connect this to voting and that it's all about how we want to infringe upon people's right to vote, to, to vote. I think it's going to be a tough sell right now with the Biden agenda um, on life support, but uh, I I wouldn't expect anything less than the establishment media going uh, along with Democrats' plan because that's what they do. That's the nature of being propaganda, which is what they are at this point. So uh, Joey, the Biden, Kamala Harris, they're going to give speeches to mark the January 6th anniversary. I, I will play some of those because it is um, when the time comes. I think that's important to do that. Nancy Pelosi is expected to retire after the 2022 midterms, according to Washington Post. We all know this is true, um, but it's she can't say it because she needs to keep power consolidated and she doesn't want to distract from any potential chance the Democrats have to pass something in her likely last year as speaker uh, because people are thinking about consolidating power in the event that she particularly if the Democrats are able to control the Congress still, which is always possible in the era of cheap by mail, in the era of variant after variant after variant, where who knows how easy it'll be to vote. Uh, maybe it'll be easier in 2022 than it was in 2020, <clears throat> where we saw you know record people vote for Joe Biden, who you know is, is skeletal and somehow got the most votes in the history of the country by a mile. So it's hard to know, but uh, th that is something that is on the horizon and we'll see what emerges. As is so often the case these days with the left, whoever replaces her will somehow be worse. I, I can almost guarantee it. Uh, one more that I can't um, resist. The uh, Sandra Garza, who was a partner of Brian Sicknick, who died of a stroke at, during the Capitol riots, which is horrible, but he was the guy who everyone was told was another guy who was murdered by Trump supporters and he wasn't. She says Trump was 100% responsible for January 6th and needs to be in prison. So look for a lot of that coming up for the rest of the week. All right, last one for the opening today. I will do a quick Omicron update because, as I mentioned, the Omicron schizophrenia in terms of people's reaction to it and how to deal with it is off the charts. 3,200 schools so far have been closed due to Omicron, even though... School should never have been closed for the kids. It just means that a lot of the kids could be potentially passing the virus within their homes. A lot of times they have older people who are stuck in their homes. 
um, live with them. So it doesn't do anything to stop the virus. Um, it doesn't really, the kids have never been good vectors of the virus. So it is uh, presumably the teachers are free to be vaccinated and they're probably required to be vaccinated for the most part. So there's no science behind the school closures at all. And we've got 3,200 of them closed because teachers in general, the unions, not all, not every teacher, but the unions, um, they like to uh, have their teachers get paid to do nothing. And this is what will continue. So just remember, if your kid's school's closed, make sure to watch over their shoulders, please. And keep an eye on what they're learning. And if it's really woke, send me an email, alexatbreitbart.com, and we'll feature it on the show. And we'll feature breitbart.com. So 3,200 schools are closed so far due to coronavirus, which has mild symptoms and, uh, you know, people can be vaccinated and only, uh, thank God, only a handful of kids who are young and healthy have died from coronavirus. We still have to keep the school shut. And you get stuff like out of New York where uh, Mayor Adams, a new Adams, he is going to defy the teachers union and he's going to keep the schools open, which is good for him. But he's keeping the mandates in place for the city workers, for the vax mandates. It's one of these things where why not just open up and let people choose what they want to do? For example, the Brooklyn Nets, who have a player named Kyrie Irving, one of the best players in the NBA, who's not played in the NBA's 30-odd games this season because he is not going to get vaccinated and doesn't intend to. So now the NBA's cut a deal to let him play, which is just insane. I don't know what changed overnight. The NBA is cool with it, but the city of New York is not. So now we can only play road games. Because Mayor Adams has not taken it off and uh, made it so that he can play in Brooklyn. So he can't play in Brooklyn where he's a Brooklyn net, but he can play, I guess, on the road. Do you understand how insane that is? And if it was something that was not, it made the right look stupid, we'd never stop talking about it. But it makes the left look stupid. So you only get it for you know two minutes on conservative talk radio, and then we all move on. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's noticed everything is getting expensive. We're in the biggest economic crisis since 2008 with the government that's printing trillions and trillions of dollars. Consumer prices are the highest we've seen in 30 years. Inflation is certainly here to stay. And if the government continues its out-of-control printing and spending, the dollar could continue its freefall and lose its coveted role as the world's reserve currency. So how do you protect your money, your retirement, your savings? Well, American Hartford Gold can show you how to hedge your hard-earned savings against inflation by helping you diversify a portion of your portfolio into physical gold and silver. They'll even help move your existing IRA or 401k out of the volatile stock market and into a precious metals IRA. And they make it easy. They're the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus from the Better Business Bureau, and they have thousands of satisfied clients. And if you call them right now, they'll give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 866-670-7660. That's 866-670-7660 or text ALEX to 65532. Again, that's 866 866- 670-7660 or text Alex to 65532. 
first guest today, Dr. James Lindsay. Uh, Dr. James Lindsay is a mathematician. He's an atheist. He thinks of himself as a liberal, and yet he's become uh, one of those who are at the tip of the spear fighting against critical race theory in uh, American life. I think he fully explains it, the motivations behind it, the history of it, and he does it from a deeply intellectual and nonpartisan perspective, which I think makes it all the more persuasive. Uh, plus, he enjoys a thorough discourse and dialogue as much as just about anyone who I have on the show, uh, which is always a pleasure. So let's play it. Dr. James Lindsay is with me. New discourses for everything Dr. James Lindsay. And uh, I want to hear what you're working on now. Conceptual James on Twitter. Everyone loves your Twitter. Uh, are they censoring you at all? Are they shadow banning you yet? Well, you know, they just, I used to be shadow banned on and off a lot. I get 12 hour knockoffs, you know, here and there every little while, month or two. So they're messing with me. Um, as far as being shadow banned, I don't know because they changed the program and shadowban.eu no longer tells you. I would assume that the answer is yes. If you, if I tweet something, all of my replies are hidden now, you know, so pretty thorough. Uh, and that's part of the trick, is that we don't really know for sure. It's hard for me to prove that we're shadow banned, but exactly. I, just, I know our reach is going down rel- relative to our influence level. Right. And it's just Yeah, my follower account's going up, and my uh, total uh, reach has actually gone down. So we can, we can make a pretty safe assumption. Yeah, and it's only getting worse. And this is the problem with Silicon Valley, is that when they have a regime change, it's some, somehow they manage to actually get worse, which seems like it's impossible to be worse than Jack Dorsey. Uh-uh. No. There's a guy who's much worse now in charge. Yeah, he actually, believe it or not, had, you know, his left-leaning, et cetera, but he actually still had a libertarian values. He still yeah. stuck to his original statement to a degree that he wanted to be a free speech platform, et cetera. Right. So, yeah, as shocking as it is, it got worse. So what, what are you working on these days? So I'm just wrapping up a book about critical race theory yeah. that's called Race Marxism. The title pretty much tells you the point. I spent years resisting the conclusion that it's just, it's just Marxism using race. And I've finally been, after having read so much critical race theory, have been convinced by their literature that no, this is just Marxism using race. And here are the differences, you know, politics of redistribution versus politics of recognition, da da da. I don't get quite so heady throughout the book, but it's what is critical race theory? What does it believe? How, where does it come from, neo-Marxism, postmodernism, cultural Marxism, that history? Where does that come from, Marxist, uh, Marxism, Hegelian philosophy, Rousseau, W.B. Du Bois? And then well, how does it work, and then what can we do about it? Okay, so this is great. So I want to dig into this a little bit, because the audience will love this. Give me your quick definition of critical race theory, and give me some of the top thinkers, philosophers, activists, whoever it is, that were really the people provided the underpinnings of the philosophy. Okay, so I'll give you a simple definition they won't like first, which is that critical race theory is calling everything racist if you want to control it, until you control it. Because that's, in, in terms of what it is and what it does, that's really what it is. Just calling things racist until you have it under your control. Uh, critical race theory, though, is a fundamental belief that the organizing principle of society is racism that benefits white people. And they call it systemic racism that was allegedly created by white people and embedded into societal structures. It marks superstructure, like law, especially law, but education and all of the other institutional structures that hold up society and shape society. So racism is... in feature of the system itself and has to be critically examined using critical theories to identify it and to challenge it and ultimately to reject it uh, fundamentally by creating a full social and cultural revolution that will be conveniently enough led by the only people who actually understand this, namely critical race theorists themselves. Okay, so who are the top people who laid out the path to where we are now? So the most significant person is going to be Kimberly Crenshaw. 
Uh, it's often, you know, we people often start by mentioning Derek Bell. Derek Bell was her mentor at Harvard, um, and Derek Bell wrote Race, Racism, and American Law in 1970, which is probably the first real text. They track back to W.B. Du Bois with... Uh, the Souls of Black Folk from 1903, but obviously critical race theory didn't exist in 1903 yet. But he's talking about the double consciousness of having to inhabit, you know, being a black person in a white society and what that looks like. So he's doing is something like a proto-critical theory of race there. So they hearken back to him. But Kimberly Crenshaw is really the person who codified it. Okay, okay, let's, let's talk about Bell for a second, because Andy Breitbart wrote a lot about Bell, uh-huh. as did Joel Pollack at, at Breitbart, uh, years ago, because Obama was a supporter of his, and we were mocked for this. We were mocked because uh, Obama had a photo hugging Derrick Bell, and this was uh, apparently not news to the people who want to control what we all think all the time. Uh, the knock on Bell from a lot of the smart people is that he wasn't actually that bright of a guy. Is that where Crenshaw comes in? Well, I don't know if that's where Crenshaw comes in specifically, but I think it's true. Um, I don't think he was that bright, and he chalked up the challenges that he faced with not being that bright, and honestly, having read quite a lot of them now, I'm sort of convinced that he may, I can't diagnose anybody, obviously, but paranoid personality would not be a surprise wow. to conclude. And he also talked in weird stories, invented stories, very strange kind of a, a pattern that he'd have where he'd have imaginary letter-writing conversations with people that were made up. And that would be his, you know, evidence for whatever he's experiencing. So he's attributing a lot of his struggles to racism and interpreting it that way. But his big kind of claim to fame was uh, to insist that the, the the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954 was really just white Americans trying to defeat the communists' propaganda. That wow. the prop that the, the communist propaganda said, you know, we are anti-racist as workers of the world unite. Look at backwards Jim Crow segregated America, freedom is actually racist, communism is anti-racist. And so he was tapping into that vein to say that it's actually was was done mostly in the benefits of whites and it was done wrongly and therefore actually made problems worse for blacks, yes. made racism worse and less visible at the same time. And that's really the idea of critical race theory is that racism is a part of the system, so it doesn't get better over time, it gets worse over time and hides itself better. Wow. So okay, Crenshaw. Crenshaw being a student, Crenshaw's most famous for having named critical race theory, first of all, in uh, 1989 in Madison, Wisconsin, at their first kind of real conference. Uh, she explained later that they were critical theorists who were interested in racial justice and racial justice advocates who did critical theory, so it was a natural jump to call it critical race theory. But of course, critical theory means critical Marxism, which means the Marxism of the Frankfurt School or the neo-Marxism, I guess, of the, of the mid-20th century. So she's telling you who they are in that case. And she's much more linguistically savvy, but she's also coming out of the black feminism movement, which had figured out how to turn the black activist movement in on itself using sexism as a lever and figured out how to turn feminism in on itself using race as a lever, calling it white feminism and saying that it ignored both movements, in fact, ignored the issues of black women and that this was a structural problem even within these, you know, justice movements or whatever she wanted to call them. And so she came up with this concept of intersectionality and fleshed out all of this around that idea that the different forms of oppression are interlinked. They can't be understood one apart from another. And, uh, she really defined critical race theory very much so, whereas Derek Bell did not, by saying that there's a fundamental difference between I'm a person who is, or I'm a person who happens to be black, which she said strains for universality, in effect I am first a person, versus the statement I am black, which becomes an anchor, she says, for subjectivity, which is of course a Marxist concept yet again. And so she turned what Bell was doing into a, into a positive racial identification frame and 
kind of transformed everything into this intersectional model where what you always have to do is think about your social position according to your identity factors, uh, race, sex, gender, or so on. We, it's just exasperating to list them. Uh, so you always have to think about how you are related to the structures of power and how those shape the lives uh, of the people in them. And her key contribution at that time was to say that these forces are imposed from the outside by the racial superstructure or the sexual superstructure patriarchy or whatever, so you can't escape them. You can't yes. deconstruct them as a postmodernist. You can't say that they're not universalizing it from a liberal perspective. She undercut all other possible uh, left-based criticism and then framed all right-based criticism as, as racist. So it seems like there's no forgiveness then and we can right. never come back from it and that seems very helpful to people who don't generally like the founding of this country or are you know, right. Judeo-Christian heritage, all that stuff, it seems very convenient. It's very convenient. The goal was, actually, the neo-Marxists struggled with the problem, was that capitalism, or sorry, uh, that, that, that Marxism in a capitalist situation will actually stabilize itself. Yeah. You agitate for economic reforms and you get ones that they would consider half measures, no revolution. And most of the working class is like, oh, life's pretty good now. We're not gonna be radical anymore. And they go off and do it. So they had to find ways to find things that are less easily stabilized and racial identity, sexual identity, and so on became the target. And that became a very fruitful like wheel of acquiring power for them because it all comes down at the end of the day to how do you feel? Well, I felt like I was racially discriminated against. I felt like there was a racial slight there. And by moving it fully subjective, they made it absolutely impervious to uh, the ability to be stabilized. If you just can make people feel um, like there's a suppression against them and they constantly enter that what we call external uh, locus of control frame and they can blame the system for everything, then they're going to be permanently radical. And then race is so sensitive. We have a long, ugly history with race in the country, uh, long struggle to achieve the dream of the, of, of the Declaration of Independence as, as Jefferson wrote it. And so it's very easy to find places to inflame and flame and flame. And it's perfect if you want to tear down a country. Is that the goal, you think? Yeah, well, absolutely. The goal is to dismantle the United States as, a, as, as the United States Constitution, Bill of Rights, a Declaration of Independence, and everything that flowed from that, and to replace it with a regime rooted on critical race theory analysis. Like Ibram Kendi famously even said the remedy to all inequality in the United States is to pass an anti-racist constitutional amendment that will establish a department of anti-racism that will judge all, it will make illegal all racial inequity over a certain threshold, he says, and it will give him absolute dominion, or that, that department, absolute dominion over all federal, or federal, state, and local level policy, as well as private company policies wherever racial inequity surfaces. So a total dictatorship of the anti-racists, which by the way parallels perfectly the dictatorship of the proletariat. Who are the worst players now? Who are the people who you think are putting the critical race theory into the hearts and minds of Americans. Of course, I want to start with the schools because it does seem like a lot of schools won't say that they're doing CRT and other schools uh, will. So some schools say it's a hoax. Some schools are openly saying it. Uh, my alma mater, my high school, Harvard Westlake, is one of the few places. It's a, a very um, a well-regarded prep school, at least once was in Los Angeles. They're one of the few schools that openly talks about CRT. Right. It's a, uh, they, so they're not they're not in on the memo that you're supposed to conceal this. Most of the schools actually aren't. So the biggest players, if we stick within critical race theories, would be, for example, Gloria Ladson-Billings. She's been asked to write much of the uh, Ed Equity Virginia program uh, for the Virginia DOE, for example. She also wrote the paper in 1995 toward a critical race theory of education. She's been doing this for 30 plus years. Um, 
in dedicated bringing it into the schools. Uh, we could talk about Ibram Kendi, who obviously has a big institute at Boston University, has been given lots of money, famously $10 million by Jack Dorsey, among many others. Yeah. You know, these are Kimberly Crenshaw runs the African American Policy Forum that runs a lot of this, especially in the legal domain, uh, and runs a lot of propaganda. So you have those characters. In the media, you have people like Joy Reid is very much pushing it. Mark Lamont Hill very much pushes it. They know what but it are is. Are they all open about it, or are they well, the tenants? They, they're, they're kind of open about it, but they, yeah. they'll admit it if caught. Yeah. Um, so they're, they push it in the media. But if you really want to know where is it really being driven, we have to step out of the critical race theorists themselves, who have always been an academic backwater that nobody ever cared about. You read papers from the 90s, like nobody cares about this. Yeah. Uh, you know, the law review articles, well, it's this weird thing, and I guess it's happening, and right. people make room for it. But no, it's people like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation who dump millions upon millions of dollars to redesign school curricula. Yeah according to critical race theory they're the biggest one probably in terms of wow. funding this but we could also you know the open society foundation does some degree of funding this so gates, gates and soros tides. are two of the bad guys as always well yeah and like i said bill and melinda gates is probably the tip of the spear in terms of dumping money into Amazing. education critical race theory initiatives although soros by the way or at least i should Why? say the open society what's, what's, foundation. what's their problem i mean what i mean soros is always has a problem with this country but here, here's a point uh, dr james the I've been saying for years that the left, not liberals, the, the, the left does not like this country. And a lot, a lot of people, even my colleagues on the right, conservative media, have said that's going too far. We don't know that. Yeah. And I think people are coming around to that idea, and I think this is partially why. Right. Uh, Will they ever admit that they really don't like this country? And that's sort of the point behind so much of this? I mean, a lot of the leftists on the ground admit it quite vigorously. Yeah. You know, they burn American flags. I had an event yeah. recently. They burned an American flag at my event, you know, and wow. carried on and yelled. And, you know, they say that America's a racist country. Why should we save a racist country? And it's fundamentally racist stamped from the beginning yeah. is the title of uh, Ibram Kendi's lesser known book. So there's a there's an aspect where but what they try to do is they try to claim the mantle of it and yeah. say that they actually love it. Yes. And by the way, as far as like Gates and Soros, I doubt they'll ever admit it. An open society. Foundation, though, is the chief funder of Crenshaw's African-American Policy, wow. Policy Forum. So this is where the money's coming from. Um, they probably won't, op the big guys at the top probably won't openly admit that they hate America. They want to co-opt America for their own purposes. And that's really why you say, why are they doing it? That's yeah, why. They want I a complete so. social and cultural revolution that they end up on top of. And so in a sense, you can even say people like Soros, people like Gates, and some of these other Rockefeller, you know, Tides Forward, all these big foundations are using even the critical race theory uh, advocates as kind of useful idiots to move their agenda, uh, probably not actually caring about it in the long run, which will leave the critical race theorists to say racism won again, you know, and have more fuel for their own theory. So, so tell me about queer theory. Queer theory is a co totally different branch that's not actually totally separate at all. It's just another <laughs> branch of identity-based yeah. Marxist thought that was first kind of burst out of this sort of semi-Marxist, semi-not-Marxist feminism, radical feminism, yeah. and Marxist feminism through the 40s and 50s, probably all the way back to even before yeah. women's suffrage. But there's a big vein of Marxist feminism. There's a big vein of, of other radical feminism that kind of came together in the 80s and 90s and kind of started to blossom into queer theory under mostly the direction of people like Judith Butler, who were saying that, well, we've already accepted as feminists that gender is a social construct, so clearly, why not sex? If that's what gender is based on, sex must be. So you have this slippery slope of social constructivism always present, always happening. Uh, and other architects of queer theory started to argue that our identity categories need to be made fluid. They define in queer theory, queer means an identity without an essence. And so the idea is to dissolve any essential quality whatsoever on any level for, for um, 
sex, gender, and sexuality categories, but it also bleeds into ability status, fat status, and mental health status as well. Uh, so queer theory then is this kind of amorphous blob that everything is actually up for grabs and the, even the attempt to categorize anything is an act of oppression. And in fact, that's because everything, whether it's being male, being uh, female, being masculine, being feminine, being straight, being gay, whatever, ultimately boils down to what Butler described as a performance that creates the illusion that these things are real, even though it's just a performance. So it is the attempt to destabilize identity and make people believe that identity is something that you act out, usually for political purposes. They explicitly say, for example, in queer theory, that the point is not to stabilize LGBTQ identities, but rather to make sure they never become stable. Yeah. For the same reason that you don't want the proletariat to get economic reforms that make them stable. The goal is constant instability and chaos. Is this where the trans hysteria that we're in right now, is this where it's coming from? Yes, it's all based out of queer theory. I mean, there was obviously transsexualism before of that, course. but the, the ta attaching it to gender theory and gender criticism and then eventually queer theory, is this is this is what has actually happened. Most of the kind of most, many of, I should say, of the most influential uh, queer theorists have been trans writers, for example. Uh, Jack and or Judith Halberstam, and I I'm supposed to apologize for dead naming, but I actually can't remember which one's the right one right now. And then there's another Halper, and I won't even go with the first name. No, I'm, I'm a habitual dead namer. But, but that's part of the point, though, is the chaos creates the environment where they can fill vacuums. In fact, not just that. You're trying to destabilize the individuals to become yeah. moldable and be easily radicalizable, but you're also creating young people who are not going to be able to relate to the society they were raised in or their parents or their religion. Yeah. So they're going to come home and say, well, America was, was cis-heteronormative for so long. Boo, America. The church is obviously very cis-heteronormative, so boo Christianity, boo right. the church. Our parents just don't get it. So we just have to separate from our parents and our grandparents' generations. So that Marxist agenda to break away from the ge previous generations, culture, religion, yeah. and family is kind of the chief agenda of queer theory under the guise, which they openly say is a lie, yeah. of helping LGBTQ people. So, so you're not a conservative per se, and you're—I forgive me—I always forget. You're, you're atheist. You're agnostic. You're—that's a haggling over words. I don't believe in God. I'm probably what people would consider agnostic within the Christian oh, world. Okay, sure. So, but you're providing a message that I think is really contra to the secularization of the country, and it, so I, I'm kind of curious. Who do who do you want to reach the most? Um, how do you square this personally? That you're, you're really reaching a lot of people who are religious people. I mean, they, they yeah. love what you're writing about and talking about. And it's interesting because you personally don't ascribe to that. Well, the thing is, is I've really come to respect religion. And most importantly, I've come to really respect your right to religion, the right yeah. to your conscience, your right to belief. Kind of like, you know, as we talked about before we got on here, yeah. some people aren't gun guys, but they're gun rights guys. Yes. I'm not a religious guy, but I'm a religious rights guy like all that. the way to the bottom, right? Yeah. So there's that. But I also do believe that there is an order to nature. I just don't, I don't take the last Aquinian step and name it God, sure. right? And so there are things that are better and worse approaches with humans, and I don't think that we really should be playing around too much. I, I humble myself before what is in the world, and rather than trying to be arrogant and say we can shape it to our heart's desire. So I have a lot of camaraderie, therefore, with Christians because our philosophies are less far apart than we think they are uh, in many respects. But um, I want to reach anybody that's willing to listen, to yeah. be honest with you. So, so fascinating. So you have new discourses. Uh is anyone having a discourse with you? I know I'm having a discourse with you, but are people who uh, might not be agree with most of what you're reporting and writing and researching? Because this is what I'm most disturbed by, 
is the country just seems to be getting bifurcated ideologically. No, in fact, they don't. They've more or less completely shut me out. I'm open to it, of course. Yeah. I'm more than welcome, or more and, than willing and, and to go talk you're, to you're very calm. You're bringing intellectual arguments. You're not bringing hysteria. And still, that, that's probably the least likely to get you a debate with someone on the left. Right. Now, I will say, since I named him as one of the purveyors of CRT and, and media, I, may, I named Mark Lamont Hill. Yeah. He did me have, have me on his show, that's and we, we did have a discussion, a debate. Uh, so, you know, it's not totally a closed door, and it is proof I'm willing to do it. Um, what I meant, though, let me actually articulate just for a second with the new discourses. Because of the postmodern influence that we see now in all of this kind of political arena, what they believe is that society is structured and shaped by what they call discourses, which are the webs of meanings between words and signs and symbols. And so I believe they've captured the discourses, so we need new discourses. So it's actually a little bit of a you know dagger in the side to the postmodern movement that I say no you've you've ruined those discourses we need new discourses we're going to talk about things on real terms again instead of you know ideologically controlled and contorted terms that they're beholden to postmodernism or critical theory. So are you optimistic right now for the country or that people are? I think we're making progress with individuals, but the left seems to be making more progress with institutions. Who's winning the tug of war right now? So, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic now, whereas if you would have interviewed me this summer about this, I would have said I was cautiously, or I was hopefully pessimistic. Okay. So I'm coming around because I'm seeing people wake up so quickly. And you are right, you know, they are not, they have almost complete institutional control, but there's a bit of an irony because the world is changing very quickly, right? And so they, are, they have their long march for the institutions, they seize the institutions right at the moment when the institutions start to lose their meaning, to lose their importance in many regards. And so there's a complete revolution going on of another kind brought apart by technology. This is a very deep and different subject, but I don't believe we've actually even had a marketplace of ideas up to this point. I think we've had an aristocracy of ideas that's in the universities, and it's, it was at first you know, in the magisteria from the churches, but then it switched to the universities, into the media, into the big um, kind of institutional players through the last couple, 300 years. And now, through the internet, people can, as they say, do their own research. And we are now entering a true marketplace of ideas, true intellectual freedom. Sure, but the oligarchy is trying to control that as well. Why do you think they're trying to? Because they're on the verge of possibly losing it, which is why I'm cautiously optimistic. I like that. And we'll have to flesh out more next time we speak what the new marketplace of ideas could look like yeah. if we have a say in social media environment, which we don't, and maybe we never will. But Dr. James Lindsay, where should the audience go if they want to check out your stuff? Uh, newdiscourses.com is the website. At Conceptual James is the Twitter handle. So that's where you can find me. You're fascinating guy and I hope we come back uh, and speak more often. I'd love to. Thank you. J.D. Vance also joined the show today and I had a long list of current events to talk about with J.D. but uh, luckily we get uh, access to his mind uh, every so often on the show. So I did take the time today to mostly dig into the big tech issues which have been in the news quite a bit with Twitter and Facebook censoring Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, we also get into some of the vaccine mandates, some of the crackdowns there, which are uh, really kind of um, a trap that he explains to make certain areas of our culture even woker than they already are. Uh, but I'm really impressed with his plan to take on big tech, and I think you want to hear all the details. So let's play it. JD, I've got a ton of stuff to get to with you. I want to talk a little bit about big tech, where you've been at the cutting edge of identifying what a problem uh, big tech is for right-wingers. It gets worse every day. Uh, we saw Twitter banning Marjorie Taylor Greene. Facebook is following suit with blacklisting her as well. Um, you saw Rand Paul switch over to Rumble. I know you're an investor in Rumble uh, from YouTube, which is a good sign 
Uh, give me your 30,000 foot on where we're at on this issue. Then I got a couple specific follow-ups. Yeah, so I mean, I think basically you have what I call the regime. It's the leadership class in the country, which has decided that certain ideas must be censored. And they're using both the government and the technology sector to censor those ideas. Um, I don't know if there's explicit coordination. I don't think it actually matters. As you know, the liberals kind of think all the same way, regardless of whether they're you know, sending emails or text messages back and forth, deciding who to ban and who to kick off. I think uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene was kicked off of Twitter um, you know, very quickly and very quickly after she made a comment that you're not allowed to make. You're not allowed to talk about the January 6th detainees. Uh, in this country, or you will get kicked off of uh, social media. And, uh, you know, she did it too much, and so eventually the hammer came down. Um, I, I think there are two sort of ways in which we're responding. You know, I, I've been working on this, obviously, in the private sector. You mentioned I'm an investor at Rumble. I've also worked at Parler before and, and tried to basically find companies, because I do think there's a market opportunity out there for dangerous ideas, right, for things that you're not supposed to say that turn out to be true. The crazy thing about our country right now is that what, what, what was a conspiracy theory three months ago uh, all of a sudden becomes obvious reality uh, in a very short time. And so we need to preserve as much as we can a marketplace of ideas so people can actually disagree about this stuff. Uh, but I also think we need really you know, much better public policy. It's one of the reasons I'm running for Senate in the state of Ohio, is, is that unless you have you know, basically the threat of these companies being broken up, the threat of treating these companies as common carriers, you know, if you if, if you own a, a private highway in Ohio, you can't discriminate against people based on their political viewpoints or their race. I think the Internet, the modern information superhighway should be treated in the same way. Um, so, so we're trying to solve these problems with a couple of different tools. And, I, and, and at the end of the day, if we're unsuccessful, it doesn't matter how secure or unsecure our elections are. It doesn't matter how good our candidates are. It doesn't matter how right we are on the philosophy or on the specifics of public policy. If we cannot debate our ideas, if our candidates cannot reach their constituents, if voters cannot even hear what we're saying, then we are never going to win another national or important state election in this country again. This is the issue, in my view, because it covers all the rest. Uh, I think it's a huge issue, too. And yet I'm not seeing necessarily a coherent plan coming out of the Republican Party to deal with it. And uh, first of all, I want to get if you agree with me on that. And second of all, I want to get a plan uh, that you have if you if you have one specifically, because it's time to start getting down to specifics. Um, I, I've been complimentary of some of the rhetoric that uh, Kevin McCarthy has been using. I just spoke to Jim Jordan about this. He's got a couple of specific ideas, which I was happy about. But I think by and large, we're way behind on this topic and it is time to get hyper focused. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. One, I agree with you that Republicans, you know, leadership in Washington has been really inadequate on this. So uh, I, I was pretty disappointed in Kevin McCarthy's statement uh, that didn't even mention Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, the fact that she had been kicked off of one of the largest social media platforms in the country. Um, you know, McCarthy is likely to be the Speaker of the House. And while he doesn't have power right now, the fact that he's going to be Speaker of the House in a year is power of its own of its own type. And I think a very strongly worded statement and the threat of real action against big technology is what he needs to he needs to show right now. That's the one thing that might get these guys pushed in the other direction. You, you can't censor a sitting U.S. congresswoman. It's not even about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, it's about her constituents. It's about voters. It's about whether we actually have a democracy in this country uh, where voters can reach their elected representatives. You know, on, on the specifics of this, I think there are three basic things that we need to do. Uh, one, 
I really do believe we have to update the antitrust framework in this country. Uh, it, it's, you know, the, the old antitrust framework is based on market size and based on consumer cost, uh, but that, that doesn't necessarily apply super well to, to modern you know, data monopolies that effectively control the public discourse. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, a big part of what's driving the censorship regime of big tech is that these companies are just too big and they're too powerful. When you have that much concentrated power, it leads to censorship. It leads to control. Uh, I think we should break these companies up. You know, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp is actually the same company. Those should be at least three separate companies and maybe more uh, beyond that. I think Amazon controls the entire modern hardware infrastructure of the Internet. Uh, we should not allow that to happen. We should forcibly break them up and create more competition in the same way that Teddy Roosevelt uh, created competition in the steel industry, which, by the way, was good for steel industry investors and consumers. It was good for both. It also made them politically less powerful. That's, that's number one. Uh, number two, I, I think that we have to take the common carrier regulations that have existed in this country since the founding. Uh, you know, this goes back to English common law, uh, that if you control something that is of important public stature, you cannot discriminate against people based on their viewpoints, based on their race, based on their ethnicity, uh, based on their religious views. In other words, you know, there are private highways in, in, or highways in, in Ohio that are controlled by private companies. That company cannot say you're not allowed to drive on this highway because you're a Catholic or because you're a Protestant, because you're a Jew, because you're a Gentile. That's just not allowed. Uh, same with high, same with railways, right? Railways, one of the oldest common carriers in our country. You cannot discriminate in the provision of rail services based on anything other than economic benefit, uh, the basic you know, demands of your business. I think we should do that with Google, with Facebook, with Twitter. You can't kick off a congresswoman because she says things you don't like. You can't kick off a congresswoman because she has the wrong viewpoints or the wrong skin color. That's just not allowed in this country. Uh, I've actually joined some lawsuits that would get Google declared a common carrier. I happen to think Google is the most important company, but we don't have to touch that right now. Uh, oh, no, no, it is. And, and, and I'm happy for you to touch it. And this is this connects with the Rand Paul issue where he's leaving YouTube because you can't just look at YouTube as YouTube. You gotta look at YouTube as Google also. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, look, look I, I did this two days ago uh, because I didn't believe it when somebody told me to do it. I, I'd ask your viewers, your listeners to go and Google, can men become pregnant? Because right? this is not just a political issue. This is a cultural issue. And if you Google right now, can men become pregnant? What Google will tell you, and by the way, what it's going to tell your 13-year-old child uh, when that child goes and Googles this term, is that yes, men can become pregnant. In fact, it happens right. more often than you might think it does, right? So, so these people control literally information, knowledge in our society. If they control that, they will control how we think. If they control how we think, they control how we vote. Uh, the, the third and final thing is I really think, Alex, that we have to start thinking about these companies as stealing our data and selling it to our enemies, selling it to our enemies foreign, sometimes the Chinese, uh, selling it to our enemies all over the world. Uh, there, there, is, there is nothing that says that Google should be allowed to harvest your data as a consumer, sell it back to you, sell it to our adversaries as Americans. Uh, we could very easily say if they're going to take your data, which is, by the way, the entire economic engine of big tech, of Facebook, of, of, of Google, of everyone, it's it's harvesting your data. It's effectively spying on you. We should just make that illegal or at the very least force them to pay for it, which I think would break their economic power as companies and would re reduce their political power. So we, all of these things have to be on the table, which, by the way, and I, this is the last point that I'll make. Uh, establishment Republicans for a decade have been saying when, when people like me go out there and say we have to do something about this. 
They've been saying, you can't do this. You can't do this. They're private companies. We have to respect private property. And the thing I always say is these companies are not private companies. They became monopolists on the back of government privileges that no small, medium, or even large-sized business in this country has ever enjoyed. They have gotten as big as they are because of government favors. And if we cannot do something about them, we're going to lose this country. So I have a question for you, uh, J.D., because you're getting pretty good at Twitter. Uh, you're pretty sharp at Twitter. And I, I find that this is something that's a real tough catch-22, uh, potentially another checkmate from the left, which is that Twitter is a truly repulsive place, and it gets worse by the day. It's more <laughs> it's more censorious uh, by the day. It is more uh, – uh, they're more – they're putting so many hours into f coming up with creative ways to censor people like you and me and to limit our reach on the platform. Um, and yet it does feel as though they are uh, uh, still where the celebrity and influencer class goes first to get their ideas out. And uh, what do we actually do about it? I mean, it's a, I know there have been some noble efforts on the right, but I just see over and over again some of the, Twitter's most successful critics who are biggest on Twitter. They're not as big on other platforms. This is a huge problem, I think. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I mean, one is, is we should go to alternative platforms, right, Alex? We, we should be giving our business and giving our support to the alternative platforms. Uh, but two, we should be doing all the things that I just talked about, right? We should be thinking about common carrier regulations for Twitter. If, if Twitter was subjected to common carrier uh, it would not have kicked off a sitting U.S. Congresswoman. It would just be illegal. Uh, she would have a right of action. She'd be able to sue them in court, say, reestablish, uh, you know, give, give me back my platform. You can't kick me off. Uh, and I think we should be doing both of those things. Again, I, I tend to think that we need both private sector and public policy responses to this problem. Uh, it's such a big issue. But, you know, look, I, I agree. You know, Twitter is obviously it's a huge part of my campaign. It's a huge part of how I reach people. Each part of how I, you know, drive drive media stories and, and things of interest that I'm thinking about and talking about. Um, but but as you probably do, Alex, I know I certainly do. Uh, there are things on Twitter that I don't talk about because I, I I know that there are certain issues where if you if you say what you actually think, it's going to increase the odds that they censor you. And so you have to kind of on the one hand uh, be careful uh, while you're getting your message out there, which is unacceptable, right? The, the fact that I know that if I ask, you know. Too many questions, right? I can tweet a little bit about the January 6th detainees, and I do, but if you ask too many questions, that's when it gets dangerous. And, and, I, and I think the fact that that goes on in the back of our mind, and of course, I've, you know, as you know, Alex, my Twitter account has been shut down, uh, at least briefly in, in, in various moments in the past. Uh, the fact that I even have to think about how far over the line I can go before they silence me and basically destroy my ability to reach a big audience uh, just goes to show these companies are too powerful. Yeah, and I, I tell you personally, I outsource that within my company, which is the I task people with that because I don't want to do it. It just it makes me too sick. And luckily, I've gotten to a point in my career where I can focus on, you know, the bigger ideas, and then I can. <laughs> I, I know how the game is played. So, but we have people who monitor it for Breitbart, and they will, you know, we consult on how far we're allowed to go because you know they kick us off for for truisms or they they ban us or block right. us. Or, or censor us. And this is something that I should have been a watershed moment in American media culture that Facebook announced uh, just a couple of weeks ago that their definition of a fact is their their opinion, that their their fact checkers are actually uh, engaging in opinion content that is protected opinion under the First Amendment. Who, who didn't know that? 
And this should have been a watershed moment. It should have woken everyone up, but we kind of slept walk through it for whatever reason. Uh, did you catch that story, JD? And do you have a reaction to it? Uh, I actually didn't catch that story. Um, which yeah. So, did, so, but, so, but. so Facebook, what they said is that their fact checkers uh, are uh, actually engaging in opinion making. And I'll try to pull up the exact quote for you so you can get the exact reaction to it. But fact checkers are just opinion. Uh, Alan Bakari wrote this for, up, uh, for us at Breitbart. Uh, despite presenting itself to the public as an arbiter of truth and guarantor of factually accurate information, guarding users against fake news and misinformation, Facebook has admitted in court that, if fact, that its fact checks of information frequently aimed at conservatives are nothing more than statements of opinion. Uh, and we'll, we'll forward this article for you so you can get a maybe yeah. a, a more comprehensive reaction to it. But it, it is... A, it's a major moment, I think, because this is where they're acknowledging that the censors are doing um, something that is not just enforcing the science. They're enforcing what their worldview yep. is. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And you know, the other reaction that I have is it, it sounds like what they're trying to do is skirt American liability and defamation law, right? Be, because... You know, one, of the, one of the, the most important things that Trump ever said, in my view, is that we need to revisit New York Times v. Sullivan, which is a Supreme Court case that basically gives the media the right to lie and cheat and bully and harass people with, with no repercussions, right? It, it basically makes it impossible or nearly impossible to sue the media for defamation. I know you're in the media business. Hopefully this doesn't make you nervous, but you actually tell the truth, so I, I don't think that it will. One of the things I've advocated for is opening up the liability laws a little bit. And I, and I think what Facebook is trying to do is, is even that narrow space where you can get sued for outright lying or for, you know, censoring somebody for telling the truth. I think they're trying to get away from it. Right. It's, it's like we don't want to yes. be held up as, a, as somebody that's engaged in actual journalism or in actual fact checking. Uh, because then the standards are a little bit tough. We'd rather be considered opinion journalists, even though, of course, when Facebook is doing fact-checking, it has incredible repercussions for our entire society. It controls, you know, how many of my, my hopefully future constituents do I talk to that have told me they've been put in Facebook jail for saying, you know, the wrong thing on their Facebook? I mean, this, this is really 21st century digital-scale censorship in the world's oldest constitutional republic, I, it's, it, it's pretty crazy, but it's happened. Uh, J.D. Vance again is with me. And uh, J.D., give me the campaign website again if people want to check out what you're doing. Yeah, jdvance.com, sort of the clearinghouse. Obviously, we'd love people to support us, to volunteer for us. You know, campaign is, is in the primaries in May, and it's going to really ramp up over the next five months. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook, at least until I get banned, like, like Marjorie did. <laughs> Yeah, which is just a matter of time. It comes for all of us. Um, so I, I got a few other uh, ones that I want to get to with you. I got five or six minutes left, and I got a, a bunch of stuff I want to get your take on. Um, the uh, the military vaccination mandate is patently absurd in my viewpoint, uh, even though I'm generally pro uh, the vaccines. The freedom is far more uh, important to me than the coronavirus. I think that's probably opinion we share. Uh, but some of the tactics here that are being used now with the mandates are, are pretty unbelievable. Um, I, I just caught that Merriam-Webster changed their definition of anti-vaxxer to someone who opposes regulations mandating vaccination. So you can be pro-vaccine, yep. be up on all your vaccines, but any sort of uh, a decision that, that you make personally 
um, that it, that could render you a anti-vaxxer. Um, the fact that there's no religious exemptions, that there's no re- exemptions for people who have natural antibodies, uh, this is truly horrifying. But some people have been pointing out online, and you being maybe the most prominent among them, uh, that if we go down this road where we're forcing people out of the military, it's just going to make it woker. Yeah, yeah. I actually worry this is changing the composition of the force. I, I, I'm an enlisted Marine Corps veteran. I served from 03 to 07. Um, you know, one of the few institutions that still worked in the country, also one of the few genuinely conservative institutions in the country, and you know, most of our institutions are pretty left-wing. left-wing. Um, I, I talked to the to the father of a young Marine officer, not, not just, I mean, just a few days before New Year's Eve, and he was telling me that his son, even though his son really didn't want to get the vaccine, had already had COVID, you know, 23 years old, Marine Corps health, uh, no real risk to him, didn't want to get the vaccine um, because he just didn't see COVID as a risk, and that should be his right. Yeah. Uh, but he was he was he was going to be forced out of the Marine Corps, and he decided to get the vaccine because he was worried that the effect of the mandates was to push all of his conservative buddies out of the Corps. Even people who had apparently gotten the shot, who didn't like the mandate on principle, were thinking about leaving the Marine Corps because they hated the mandate. And, and his view is like, look, if we leave the if we let the Marine Corps become a left wing institution, this country is just totally screwed. Uh, but that's a, that's a conversation a lot of Marines, I'm sure a lot of soldiers, sailors, and airmen are having all over the country right now, is do we do something against our conscience and against our best wishes or, or our, our, our best understanding of self-interest uh, because we don't want to give the military over to our political enemies? And I, I think that this is a hidden motivation for some of these vaccine mandates is they ultimately become a sort of political purge where you know if you're very conservative, especially if you're a young conservative, uh, you may very well find yourself on the other side of these institutions. You might find yourself kicked out. And, and I'm starting to wonder if that was actually the intention all along, is to turn the police force, to turn our education institutions even more left-wing, to turn the military more left-wing, uh, because that, that is the effect that it's having. And, and look, you know, I, when I made this observation, of course, you know, the, the, the ghouls on Twitter attacked me. Um, you know, everybody pointed out that there's a mandatory flu vaccine in the military. And, you know, like... It's funny, the, the four years I served in the Marine Corps, uh, I can remember them encouraging me to get the flu vaccine. I, 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 I never got the flu shot when I was in the Marine Corps. And the idea that I would have been kicked out of the Marine Corps for not getting the flu shot is, is ridiculous. But this thing has become so politicized that for those who don't get the shot, they're basically hunted down, forced to get the shot or forced to get out of the Marine Corps. Uh, th- this is totalitarian in a way uh, that, that I think completely exceeds you know, good good order and discipline and a desire to make sure the force is healthy. Uh, you're right on this, and it's a very scary thought. And I know that this is going to, of course, have this effect because I have people in my life who did get the shot and uh, have quit or are considering quitting companies that have the mandates because they don't want to be a part of the culture there. And that does just cede more uh, territory to the woke mob. And I think they always saw this as a, um, a as a bit of a checkmate. So what do you do about it? How do you actually push back? Well, I, I think, unfortunately, uh, the answer is that until Republicans get power in Washington and, frankly, Republicans uh, with a little cojones, there, there's no way to really push back against this um, at, at the military level. Right. We can sue all day when it comes to the private employer mandate. We can sue when it comes to other mandates. But the military is one thing where the commander in chief uh, really controls things. And unless Republicans are willing to use leverage. Right. Let's let's shut down the government. Right. This is what I, I advocated for in response to the OSHA mandates, 
let's shut down the government and let's, and let's Biden withdraws the mandate. Let's actually do something. I mean, the, the thing that bothers me so much about my party in Washington is, is sometimes we have very good ideas, but we never have the we never have the, the courage to actually follow through and do something about it. Um, and this is an opportunity for us to, to, to change course. J.D. Vance, he is the author of Hillbilly LG, candidate for Senate in Ohio in a very compelling race. We've covered a lot. Breitbart will continue to cover. J.D., I've got a lot more to get to today, but unfortunately I'm out of time. So uh, let's check in again in a, in a couple of weeks, if you don't mind. Thanks, Alex. Take care. I got American parts. That's all for today. Thanks a lot to producers Haley and Greg and Robert Marlowe, who helps me pick topics. And thanks to all of you who have told 10,000 friends and family members about the new show. Uh, Don't forget to hit that share button or send a link to people and encourage them to subscribe. It helps a lot, and I think they'll get a lot out of it. I think we have a great product going, and we'd love to get the word out even more than we already have. Breitbart.com all day, every day, live show, 6 a.m. Eastern on SiriusXM, the Patriot Channel number 125 and on the SXM app if you want the full three hours. And we'll catch you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.